Welcome to episode 51 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Hey friends, welcome to episode 51. I am excited to bring you this episode. This episode in particular has been two years in the making and uh, I've been working on collecting and figuring out how to best share this content with you on this best of housing episode. So uh, this episode features nine guests uh, that I've interviewed over the past two years. And some of this content you might have heard already, but it's compiled in a way that I feel shares uh, the best, uh, I guess, collection of ideas and thoughts around housing for people with developmental disabilities. Um, I've also combined my personal um, insights from my coaching practice, as well as my lived experience with with my family and um, and my sister Sarah, uh, who has a developmental disability, and uh, this year, uh, approximately three months ago, uh, moved out of my family home uh, with my parents, which she had lived for the last thirty four years, and in with me. So, um, I feel that uh, there's a, a real interesting perspective that I'm able to share with you here, combined from uh, these nine uh, what I would call experts uh, on on housing people that uh, live and breathe housing for uh, people with. Uh, disabilities and supporting them to to find and create a home of their own, um, as well as my personal experience that's combined in with that. So I just wanted to give you a bit of perspective um, on what I'm coming from and, and, and you know the lens that I'm viewing things through. Now, before we get into the episode on uh, the best of, of housing, I'm excited to share with you some more news. Over the past couple of months, I've been thinking and working on creating a way for you, the listeners and the readers of the blog, uh, to contribute uh, to this work. So you are now able to subscribe to Empowering Ability. And uh, essentially, all of the content for Empowering Ability will remain free. This podcast will remain free. The blog will remain free. But by subscribing, you are helping to contribute towards this work. And so I've done a lot of thinking about this. And it isn't about me profiting from this work or making a, a small revenue stream. It is about giving back to the developmental uh, disability community. And 80% of all the subscription revenues will be put towards community uh, grassroots projects to support the mission of Empowering Ability, which is to create incredible ordinary lives. And the key word there being ordinary, um, not special. So... I'm excited to release this uh, option for you to, to subscribe. Again, 80% is going to go to community grassroots projects. 20% um, of revenues will go towards the cost of hosting um, and maintaining the empower, empowering ability platform. Um, and uh, a little bit of that will go towards contributing the content. Uh, hopefully there's enough uh, of you that are willing to, to support Empowering Ability by subscribing it to at least help keep me 
caffeinated with that uh, 20% that I'll be putting towards uh, the content creation and the, and the upkeep costs. So excited to release that for you. Uh, if you are interested in subscribing, you, you can go to empoweringability.org and there's a big uh, subscribe button in red at the top. Um, and you can contribute whatever level uh, you feel comfortable contributing, uh, completely up to you. And along with that, any... Um, uh, courses, online courses or content, paid content that I release, uh, you'll get that at a discounted price as a subscriber. Um, and when you think about if you're going to subscribe or not, um, maybe just consider the value that you're getting from the podcast. Um, so if you compare this medium to, you know, another medium such as purchasing a book, for example, when you purchase a book, you don't really know what you're getting. With this podcast, you do know what you're getting because you can listen to the previous uh, 50 episodes for free to, you know, experience what you're exactly what you're getting. So you know what you're getting. Uh, the other thing you can compare to is like a magazine subscription. So, you know, a magazine subscription is going to cost you, you know, somewhere 10 to $20 a month type thing. Um, and you might get one issue per month. So I hope this podcast provides as much entertainment value uh, as a magazine would. And hopefully it provides you even uh, more uh, value towards insights and um, actionable things that you can uh, integrate into your life or your work or uh, the life of a loved one. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a, a comparable to um to weigh the option of subscribing against. And I hope that you consider um, subscribing. Uh, again, you can do that at empoweringability.org. Um, also, I'd, again, I just want to reiterate, this content will always remain free. And if you un aren't able to contribute, then uh, please don't. Uh, please don't provide any uh, funds if you if you don't have the funds uh, to do so. And uh, there's other ways you can contribute, such as sharing uh, the podcast on social media or with your network. So uh, appreciate any way that you are able to contribute towards this work. All right, so let's get back into this episode on the best of housing. Now, the perspectives that you're going to hear from these nine guests are more or less perspectives that I agree with, which is why I am sharing them again. Uh, so you're going to hear perspectives uh, that, uh, for example, from Michael Kendrick, that group homes uh, are not the best or not, not the optimal option for people with developmental disabilities. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And we'll get into that in more detail in the podcast. Uh, however, there's going to be some perspectives in this podcast that you either agree with or do not agree with. And I encourage you to just listen to this pod podcast with an open mind and to just consider these different perspectives that are being provided and think about if they are true for you or not. And if it makes sense to shift your beliefs or your thinking about certain things, I was just Hope that you would listen to this with an open mind and form your own opinions and thoughts. So uh, without any further ado, let's roll. The first clip is with Michael Kendrick from episode 47. Now, this is a podcast I recommend listening to entirely, uh, and you can do so for each of those that are listed in the show notes. But now, Michael Kendrick is a international consultant and educator. Uh, that works with many governments, agencies, community organizations, universities, and colleges, really across the globe. 
And he, uh, a lot of his work focuses in on evaluations, um, strategic, strategic planning and critical problem solving all around the area of mental health and disability. Now, in this clip, Michael talks about why group homes are not the best option for people with disabilities. And I'm going to share some of my insights after we listen to the clip here with Michael. Let's start with Michael. Here we go. Right. And recently I saw you um, or saw a letter that you wrote. And it was, I believe, specifically um, in response or regard to government investment in institutionalized settings. So in Ontario, uh, it's it's looking like there's government money that's going to be invested in building group homes. Why is that not the best idea? Okay, well, a couple of uh, things about this. Uh, first of all, uh, group homes uh, are based on the premise that people with disabilities should live with each other and um, uh, that, uh, that they would always be compatible and whatnot. And uh, that's simply uh, nonsensical, that uh, people should choose to live with people because they have something in common with them besides a disability. Um, and so uh, from a, just a, an everyday standard of, you know, if you think, well, who am I going to live with if I'm going to live with others and I have to share the rent or something, I'm going to choose to live with people I'm compatible with. And so group homes uh, really have a history of putting people together to live together that are incompatible. And that creates uh, not just the problem of segregation, but also the, if you like, a kind of misfit of people being forced to live with each other who aren't uh, uh, choosing to do it. It's involuntary. It's forced uh, shared living. Uh, but it's also uh, can be uh, uh, quite upsetting uh, for people because it creates very often a very stressful existence for people. Uh, so that's on just on the personal kind of level for the person. Secondly, it, it creates the uh, idea that, uh, you know, that that's the only option for people with disabilities. Uh, when, in fact, we have, you know, provinces like Newfoundland that back in the beginning when they're just introducing group homes in Canada, uh, they decided they weren't going to do group homes. They were going to have other living arrangements for people that are more inclusive and more individualized. And they've never had to do group homes. Uh, and uh, so the Ontario premise that the, the only option or the best option uh, is group homes is, I think, quite questionable. And I think personally, from my own experience, having evaluated the services in multiple countries and uh, looked at the actual story of people's lives uh, many times over, uh, I find the individualized one person at a time arrangements much better for people because it gives you not just one choice. It gives you thousands of different choices in terms of finding a living arrangement that suits you because there are many different living arrangements besides group homes. Uh, and it doesn't mean that if you don't live in a group home, you're going to live alone in an apartment that you can live alone in an apartment. People, some people prefer that. Uh, but you can also have a housemate that isn't a disabled person. You could join in with a few people your own age uh, and get a bigger house. Um, 
you, no matter where people with disabilities live from a housing point of view, whatever setting, and for instance, there are people with disabilities that own their own home because they were fortunate enough to have a family that helped them acquire a home of their own that they owned, but many rent. Um, and uh, it's also true that many people with disabilities might, over a period of time, live in a number of different uh, arrangements, uh, you know, like everybody else, that as your life circumstances change, you might change your living arrangement. And so... Uh, well, many of these people, uh, I've been part of many exercises to create alternatives to group homes, and it's quite doable. Uh, so, And it's already been done in Ontario. So the idea that the government should decide on a single option as being crucial, you know, as sort of the backbone of their residential support system, I think is very short-sighted. Uh, and I think group homes are really mini-institutional. Uh, and they were one of the best ideas of the 1970s, but now we're almost a half century later, and uh, we need to move our thinking along. And the group home is not at the leading edge of options for people. The more personalized, uh, one person at a time arrangements are infinitely better qualitatively. So I think the government of Ontario is being held hostage to a a dying service model, in a sense, a model that should uh, go the way uh, go, and go away and uh, be replaced by more up-to-date options. And um, I don't mean to pick on the government of Ontario because there'd be group homes in many jurisdictions, but uh, it's also the case that in many places, governments have uh, chosen to expand their individualized options and freeze the growth of segregated congregate options like group homes. For instance, that's what's happened in Vermont and, you know, and it's happened in, um, uh, in, uh, in, for instance, in the Australian context by essentially giving people the individual funding to create one person at a time arrangements if, they're, if, they, if that's what they want. So I don't think from a technical point of view that the, it's, it's all, all that difficult to create more individualized options, but the, um, the, both the service providers and the government of Ontario seem uh, convinced that, that, uh, that that's the case, and I think history will show that they are deeply misguided in doing so, and, uh, and it also revealed that they were told this. They've been told that they were misguided and they've chosen to ignore that advice. So I think in this sense, they, uh, history will have uh, a lot to judge them on in terms of how they've missed a great opportunity in 2018 to put an end to segregation, uh, freeze it and to scale back the group homes and uh, uh, if you like, grow the more individualized, more socially inclusive, uh, more more, uh, if you like, tailor-made options. Now, from that clip, what Michael helped me really understand is that group homes are forced shared living. People perceive that group homes are the only option. So in a lot of jurisdictions, group homes are just the default option. It's the only option. It's the government-supported option. Therefore, we have to accept that. And simply, that's just not true. We have choice. We have other things to consider and we really need to start thinking about what the best option is for the individual and the family. 
And if you're not quite there yet, I want to share with you a perspective from Lynn Siegel. And Lynn is the CEO of Hope House in Virginia. And she's been with the organization quite a long time and has been leading this organization for a long time. And all the way back in the 1980s, they started the process of shutting down all of their group homes. And in this clip, Lynn shares why they did that. Now, if you listen to the whole podcast with Lynn, which is episode 45, Lynn will share kind of their process on how they did that. If your organization is going down the same path or interested in this path, it's a great podcast episode to listen to. Here's a clip of my conversation with Lynn. This organization, um, Hope House, that, that you're leading has gone through a tremendous amount of change. So first off, a visionary organization that started the first group home. So going from institutions to, to, to group homes, definitely a, a step in the right direction um, for people. Uh, but as you mentioned, you have 125 people living in their own home, uh, which is quite an awesome thing. So can you, I guess, share with us, like how did that transition happen? Yes. Um, so this was uh, 1984, and we ask everyone in the organization, you know, we're doing our annual satisfaction check-in. We ask everyone if they liked uh, living where they were living. And at this point, we had uh, 14 group homes, fairly large group homes, you know, eight bed or even a couple of 10 beds. And everyone, everyone said yes. They liked where they were living. And it is odd to ask 120-some folks one question and everybody answers it the same way, mm -hmm. uh, especially when it's a, a personalized question, you know? It's not like, is it raining? Is, is it sunny? It, it was a personalized question. So we decided uh, to reward it. And we reworded it very slight, uh, changed it very slightly. And we asked, how do you want to live? And it opened the floodgates of very individualized and personalized responses. But they did fall when we talked to everyone. They fell into three major categories. And the first and most dominant one was I want my own home. That this group home, no matter how many times you tell me it's my home, um, I don't control who lives here. I don't control who works here. I don't control sometimes even what I eat or what I watch on TV. I don't own the key. This is not my home. This is your home. And that was uh, shocking to us because you can, especially when you're running congregate services, you can really get lulled in to that you're fooling people. You know, the, the, your home is where I work, but still it's your home. Um, and we weren't fooling anyone. And then the second uh, theme was people wanted a job. Uh, I mean, a job with a paycheck, a job that had a diverse workforce, um, where most of the people in 1984, and in fact, still to this day, uh, around the country, went to day centers or sheltered workshops or places, again, that everyone had a label of intellectual or developmentally disabled. 
Um, and so there, there was nothing like that happening for people. And the third was we put under the category of friendship and romance. Um, people express this probably in the most unique ways, um, wanting to have someone call them up and ask them to go to a movie and they weren't paid to be with them. Uh, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, getting married, um, you know, some very modest and basic needs for around connection and belonging. So we were, um, uh, in those days, we were we defined being exceptional and, and excellent based on the fact that we had no licensure violations, meaning we met all the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, our paperwork was clean and well-organized and color-coded. We had no employee grievances. We had low staff turnover. Our group homes were all in middle to upper class neighborhoods, beautiful homes, you know, fine trimmed lawns and couches that matched the drapes. Um, You know, we just felt like this is what good services are. So when we kind of gathered all of these responses into these three themes, we audited all of our perfect program plans because Virginia held us up really as a model. And not one, not one program plan for any of these individuals addressed them getting their own home, a real job, or unpaid relationships in their life, whether they be romantic or friendship. And that was um, that was a dark that was a dark time for us because it was a a long fall because it requires you naturally to say, well, wait a minute. I mean, if your biggest stakeholders, if the people that have the most impact, you have the most impact on, um, are saying that what you're giving them is not what they want, um, that's daunting. That's that was very daunting. Okay, so. Lynn shares with us that people living in their group homes very clearly said that they do not, or they want a home of their own. And Lynn and her team helped them to do that, uh, every single person that was living in, in their group homes, which is quite a courageous thing to do. So again, uh, listen to that full episode, episode 45, if you want to hear more from Lynn. Now, it comes back to this idea of just accepting the default of group homes or thinking about designing what the ideal home or ideal solution looks like for an individual. So I want to want you to think about this for yourself for a minute. When you thought about where you were going to live or maybe even going back to where you thought you were first going to live, you had a choice. You had a choice between, you know, something like, do I go and move into an apartment? Do I move into a college dorm? Do I rent a house with a bunch of friends? You thought about all these different options. You weren't told that living in an institution or a mini institution, like a group home, was the only option for you. If you think about what a question or what this would look like for yourself, it would be like me telling you that you need to live in a retirement home, uh, which is also uh, an institution. Think about what that feels like when you walk into a retirement home. 
most people in retirement homes aren't living a vibrant, fulfilling life. Yes, I understand that those individuals are at the end of their, you know, a lot of people living there are at the end of or nearing the end of their their life in this time on this uh, planet. But now think about the, you know, 90-year-old who's living on their own, has their own apartment, and is full of joy and doing the activities that they love. I think that helps to provide some context or a frame for us to look at what it would look like, what it looks like for an individual that is being told that they have to live in a group home and that it's the only option. So think about it for yourself. Uh, if you're being told that you had to go live in a nursing home or a retirement home, how would you feel about that? So I think that that for me anyways, helps to, to get a bit of perspective on and an understanding and truth around why thinking about the individual, individualized or designing a home makes the most sense for people. And it gives them choice and control over their lives. Now, my intentions behind sharing this perspective is because it's a perspective I believe to be true and I believe to be best for people with developmental disabilities to have, and it provides them most choice and control over their lives. And I realized that if you are currently uh, working for an organization or leading an organization that uh, runs a group home type model or service, uh, this perspective could uh, rub you the wrong way. And I just wanted to share that I'm friends with many people that uh, work for organizations that run group homes. Um, And these are and they are great people. Uh, they have the best intentions and do their best to provide uh, for individuals uh, that they serve. And these people have amazing hearts and they, they do the, the best work that, that they feel that they can day in and day out. Um, and they are, and that's the vast majority of, of people that uh, work for these types of organizations. So it's not the the people. Um, so if you're listening to this, I hope you don't get your back up thinking that I'm saying that you're not doing a good job. It's not really anything to do with the people working uh, in group homes. What it has to do with is the system. It has to do with the structure of living because it takes away the choice and control of an individual and they're unable to live the best version of their life because they don't have control or as much control as they need of their life of their life and i know many organizations that run group homes are doing good work to start to shift uh, to give as much choice and control uh, to people as possible and des- on de- working on designing those individualized options so i definitely definitely encourage that work. The next guest that I want to share with you is a clip from my podcast episode with Ron Prusin. Uh, Ron Prusin is the chair of the Housing Task Force here in Ontario, which was a group that was put together uh, and provided $3 million of annualized funding by the Ontario government to uh, look at and really test and pilot different types of housing solutions. So there's lots of, you know, great grassroots ideas from people that um, this project looked at implementing and and trying out and experimenting with and measuring the results. So um, I'm excited to share this clip with you from Ron. There are some things in the podcast episode with Ron that I agree with and some that I don't, and I'll address those after this clip is shared. 
Can you share, Ron, some of the learnings that you've had being involved with, you know, your own family, your daughter, and with uh, the housing task force for the past two, two and a half years? Sure. Um, and it's a complicated mix. Uh, there, there's been a lot of learning. Uh, there's also been a lot of frustration, I will freely ad- ad- admit, and, and the government hears this regularly from those of us on the housing uh, task force as, as well. There's no question uh, in, in my mind, for instance, on the frustration front that not enough is being done. Uh, enormous appreciation for the $3 million of funding that we had made available uh, to us, uh, but also a, a clear realization that an, a great deal more money uh, is is going to be uh, required to to seriously address what is a crisis situation for many families where people have been waiting 15, 20, even 25 years uh, for housing. Uh, that the variety of ideas is is enormous. That uh, that you know, people have uh, been extremely creative in imagining a future uh, that is different from the one that they live in at this moment or that their son or daughter lives in at this moment and that their sons and daughters, in fact, have been really good at imagining futures as well. Um, it's not just the families or a community agency that is, is doing the visioning, uh, but the individuals who need supports are an important part of the process as well and contribute to, uh, to, to seeing the, the possibilities out there. Um, for me, for instance, the most significant, probably the most significant example of the creativity and the variety is the emphasis on building partnerships within your community. For many of us, and, I, and this was absolutely true for me uh, and, and my family as well, I think the assumption for many years was, okay, this is a government responsibility. You've got, it's the equivalent of saying, you know, people need health care, uh, which is provincially funded in the province of, of Ontario. It's a government program. We expect the government to do this. It's the equivalent of, of what we do for senior citizens, that you know, the government plays an important role in providing pensions, in providing uh, you know, support for housing opportunities for senior citizens and the like. It is a government responsibility. There's no question about it, I would uh, argue. And I don't think the government is doing enough. But it's also a community uh, responsibility. And uh, not just because what the community can offer can help to deal with the problems, but because what the community can do will provide better solutions to to the problems. Um, I think a key part of understanding the housing crisis, a learning experience for me uh, through the housing task force work has been the value added of getting the community involved, not just because you can mobilize some resources, some financial resources that way, but because you develop community for the individual who's going to need support. You develop social opportunities, uh, connections, networks. You develop recreational opportunities. You develop educational and employment uh, opportunities. And that's incredibly important. At the end of the day, the house itself, whether it's an apartment or a room uh, in a group home or a a townhouse uh, or whatever, a condominium, it's an important part. It's a crucial part of someone's life experience. 
but it's one piece of the picture. That house, that literal roof over someone's head, has to be surrounded, if we're going to talk about real quality of life for people, has to be surrounded by a community. Uh, that individual needs a house within a community, needs a, needs a place to live within a community where they can live um, and, and enjoy uh, what community offers for all of us, not just people with disabilities. And that's one of the real uh, learnings from the, the proposals. That okay, so I've had some time to reflect on my thoughts on this episode with Ron and, um, and the views discussed in this uh, clip. And so where I agree with Ron is really around accessing the community and, um, and community resources and how those are very important in creating a full life. And it's not really just about the home. It's about um, creating a life in that home and in the community that's, uh, that that home is in. So I really agree with that. Uh, I also wanted to talk about the, Ron's point around the government and the government's role in housing uh, for people with developmental disabilities. Now, I believe that the government does play a role and there is uh, some level of responsibility uh, for the government to be providing um, some sort of uh, assistance in terms of housing. And I'll talk about that later in, in this podcast uh, after the clip with uh, Janet Cleese, because I really feel that it's a afford an affordability issue and a poverty issue when in terms of accessing uh, the physical uh, housing. So when we just accept the offering by provided by the government, we're giving away our power because we're signing ourselves up for a suboptimal option. We're giving away our choice and control because the majority of the time right now in the current environment is that this the option the default option provided is some sort of group living. Um, and in that situation, you have very little choice and control over your life. So it's a suboptimal option compared to designing and creating uh, a home, uh, which we'll talk about later uh, in, in subsequent clips with subsequent guests. Um, so we're putting ourselves in a, a victim state by giving away our power. Uh, we have the opportunity to claim our power. And in Ontario, for example, there's, you know, uh, 16 or so thousand people on a government waiting list uh, with a de developmental disability for uh, government uh, supported housing um, and plus or minus a couple thousand people. I'm not sure what the, the current number is as of um, October uh, 2018. So I think that we have the opportunity here to create what's best for uh, that individual with a developmental disability and the government can play a role in that and they're part of the solution they are not the solution all right so the next guest that i'm going to bring on here is a clip from the episode i recorded with chris woodhead in episode 25 and Chris is the Director of Housing and Business Development uh, for Dimensions UK. And Dimensions UK supports about 5,000 people uh, in the UK uh, with 
um, learning disabilities and people on the autism spectrum uh, disorder. Uh, so the people that have ASD. Now, in this clip, uh, Chris show shares what they are working on uh, at Dimensions to provide people with disabilities their own front door. So here's a clip from my conversation with Chris. The company I'm with, Dimensions, is um, a company that's been around now for about 30 years in one form or another, and it is dedicated to delivering great quality support for people with learning disabilities uh, and autism across England and Wales. So we support about 5,000 people in total, uh, the majority of whom um, I would say uh, have, have complex needs or face significant challenges in life. Um, our, our our company was formed um, uh, at a time when um, hospitals and institutions were being closed in the UK. So we 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 grew from a time when people who who had uh, complex support needs were being supported to move from institutions, from assessment and treatment units, from long-term residential hospitals to lead extraordinary ordinary lives in, in, in the community so so really being supported to, to to have more choice and control over how they lead their lives and it's the same it's the same objective we've had for for, for 30 years now so you know creating and delivering truly personalized services for people who who really need them Right. Uh, we've we've recently been um, working on a new model for supporting people, which we call Activate. And Activate is a is a model of support which considers eight different themes or domains in someone's life and seeks to put in place the right kind of support, but also um, achievable objectives for the person at the centre of that support in each of those domains. And they range from someone's physical health and well-being through the activities and skills that they undertake, um, their communication and social interaction with people in the environment around them. Critically, and I guess what we'll talk a bit, a bit about today, the physical environment, the, the home that they live in, um, and then relationships with families, relationships with the support staff that work with them, um, services, and last of all, our, our wider organization. So, so, you know, I guess central to the values of Dimensions is about making sure that we're able to support people to excel and grow in each of those core, those core um, domains of support, if you like. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense for sure. Um, and for people that are interested in learning maybe a little bit more about that model, is there somewhere that they can go um, maybe on, on your website to, to access that? There is. If you look on our website, um, then there's a series of short films that talk about the pilot research that we did to to um, yeah to formulate what we now call Activate. Obviously, it didn't start off being called Activate. Um, there's a couple of case studies on there that describe uh, how the model is implemented and the way that it was developed. I think I think the things that we're proudest of with the pilot research were. Not, it wasn't just about the quality of support it delivers for for people, because uh, I, I don't think it's, a, it's it's a secret that active support, you know, is a uh, yields dividends. It's a great way to support people to achieve outcomes. But there were two other core um, 
consequences that, that we thought were were really inspiring. The, the first of which was um, we saw for the people that we were supporting using this model, we saw a significant reduction in challenging behaviour, which we thought was really, um, really conducive because it, it supports people to live in the community. And that, that's, you know, the, uh, any mis community misunderstanding of challenging behaviour um, can create real challenges for us as an organization. So, you know, to be able to develop a model which helps to re reduce challenging behavior is critically important. Mm -hmm. but, 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 but lastly, I think for us, um, it was the, the increase in satisfaction for staff. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but, but finding great people to, um, to deliver great support is a challenge, uh, frankly. And, and their, their, their satisfaction and the way that they work and um, in keeping their motivation high is critically important. And, it, and, and in implementing this new model, we found that um, yeah, staff and colleagues expressed a, a higher level of fulfillment in the work that they were doing. And that's great for us because if, if we can keep great staff, then we can create continuity for people we're supporting and ultimately we get better outcomes at the end of it. So a couple of things that I like that Chris shared with us. I think the first one is the Activate model. Uh, so I'll include a link where you can go and take uh, a look at that Activate model and what the components of it are. And like Ron Prusen shared, uh, creating a home is more than just the physical space. And the Activate model that Dimensions has put together uh, really acknowledges that as well. I think another important insight for, for coming from Chris is that they're really working to give people their own front door. So traditionally, yes, they have group homes and yes, they still have group homes, but they're working to uh, shift what they currently have in terms of their service offering into a more individualized offering uh, of giving people their own front door and the choice and control that comes with that. Uh, the other thing that I that I uh, appreciate that Chris offers is separating uh, support and uh, home. So separating uh, and making those non-exclusive. -ex uh, so meaning uh, Dimensions offers both the, the physical bricks and mortar and the service inside of the home, but they also are separating that. So if an individual is living in one of their properties or renting from uh, from them and, and that's their home, it doesn't mean that they have to use Dimensions uh, support uh, and vice versa. If they choose a home of their own and, and they rent somewhere else, it doesn't mean that they lose the support that they're getting from Dimensions. And, and I think that's an important thing to consider as we go forward. As well, the findings that Chris shares uh, that they've had with the outcomes of the Activate model really don't surprise me. So the increase in staff satisfaction uh, really isn't a shocking thing to me and the reduction of challenging behaviors. So when you give people a choice and control over the, their life, then they're happy. They, there's no reason for them to have those challenging behaviors or to act out because a lot of that acting out is trying to gain control over the things that, or control over their life, control over the things that they want. And when people are happy, of course, you know, there's going to be more positive energy uh, around that person and people want to be around positive people. So just the increase in staff satisfaction and staff retention just makes a whole lot of sense. So again, this also 
continues to build on the case of giving people their own front door, creating that individualized, customized uh, solution for that individual for, for, to create their home. The next clip I'm going to share is from Janet Cleese. So Janet Cleese is the executive director of an organization called DAFERS. Uh, for short, uh, LONG, it stands for Durham Region uh, Family Resources and Supports. They just uh, rebranded because that much more accurately uh, depicts uh, resources and supports is, is really what they focus on. Um, and they're a learning organization, uh, which I also appreciate. So Janet is going to share her insights on uh, housing. And they've had a project uh, here in Ontario that was funded by that housing task force that that Ron Prusen is the chair of. So Janet is going to share uh, what they have learned with the families in their community. You know, today we're in another situation Um a difficult housing situation in Ontario, for sure, and anything that touches uh, the Toronto area, <laughs> absolutely, for sure. And in my new role with the Durham Association for Family Respite Services, uh, we've ju- we're just completing a two-year housing project, and so can I talk a little bit yeah, about yeah, that? Yeah, with the housing task force, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. So sure through the housing task force, we were awarded one of their um, projects. Uh, there were only 18 funded, so we were thrilled to kind of do this. And I think to great extent, um, through my experience, and one of our coordinators, housing coordinators, is Helen Dion, who is one of the founders of um uh, Rouge Mount. So with our combined experiences, our go-to was to kind of think in the same kind of ways and really thinking in the midst of this housing crisis, people are still finding housing. People are moving every single day. And uh, if we just went forward, the, the title of our proposal is housing is a community issue. So it's not a disability issue. It's a community issue. And what are the ways that all kinds of people are looking for um, and, and finding ways um, to to build, to buy, to rent, um, uh, to figure out housing? And why couldn't some of those ways suit the families who are looking for opportunities? And uh, so our project was really quite um, minimal. We worked with, um, uh, we partnered with uh, an organization called uh, Brockville and District um, Association for Community Involvement in Brockville, who had similar outlook in life. And uh, so they hired two part-time coordinators, and so did we. And what we went about is we brought families together and said, we have no money at all. Do you want to come and talk about housing? And in Durham region, um, 30 families have gathered together to talk about housing with no money on the table. I think that absolutely fascinating. And over, it shows how important, how issue important is it is and how understanding families are that they are going to be part of the solution. That they are not, we just said this isn't even an MCSS issue. It doesn't really belong at the Ministry of Community and Social Services. It belongs with housing. And mostly the issues that are faced with uh, families with a disability, families with a family member with a disability, it really is um, affordability issues, not disability. Because even if people need uh, renovations and accommodations in their housing, the reason people don't do it is a cost issue not anything else, right? And so uh, we really need to ally ourselves with all of the people that are struggling for housing 
you know, across Ontario, across Canada. And in the midst of that, there are things like Habitat for Homes. There's things like um, options for homes in, in the Toronto area that helps uh, more affordable ownership happen. There's all kinds of stuff happening in ordinary housing sector that uh, our families didn't know anything about. And so what we, we, we brought, uh, the, the other coordinator has real estate background. So we've got, you know, Helen with intentional community background. We have Kim with her, um, real estate background. And we started to explore. We brought in people to talk about different kinds of financing. We brought in people to talk about equity co-ops and other forms of social housing. Uh, Families came together and we had a night where everyone took one area of kinds of ways that we knew housing was being built, co-housing cooperatives. They did research, made posters and came together for an evening and shared their learning with each other. Uh, People talked a lot about renovations. And one family says, you know, I renovated our uh, a second apartment into our home. So our son, even though he still lives with us, has some separate space. And then when he got support, the support could be separate. And he has a much more typical adult lifestyle than when he lived with us. And lots of families were thinking, oh, well, that's that's a good idea. That's a, you know, with limited funds, that's a really smart next step, right? So over the course of our project, we have had um, six families either move to a home with a second apartment or create one in their home. Um, so major steps. Some people have done that as a forever thing. They think that's exactly how they'd like their family to live into the future. And some families have said, we just like it, get a taste of what it feels like to live separately. We think this is a step toward a home of his own. And maybe we can sell our place and afford something at that point in time. So they're again, they're in charge of what the next steps might be. And um, 12 families got together and said, you know, whenever whenever we try to talk to builders or whatever, and we're just one or two families or we're just loosely connected, they're not taking us really seriously. So let's incorporate. So we have this brand new incorporated family group called the Intentionally Built Community. And what they are, they're an entity that is going to partner with builders in order to build when they're doing big builds that they will keep in mind uh, two or three units for people with disabilities in a larger build um, and talk about how to make those units, the whole building, but those units in particular, affordable. Right. And so and we have people being really creative about one family is talking about selling a larger family home and maybe they'll have money for two down payments on two condos that will be in the same building. And when they no longer can be there or pass away, uh, their their daughter will be well established in the building. Right. Mm -hmm. So all of these creative, creative ideas um, that uh, families are just working away on. And the change really comes when they think that it is their issue to work on. They understand they have different kinds of sets of assets. And that's not to say that this is affordable for everyone. So they do have some clear asks, right? And they they would really like to see uh, portable housing subsidies. So you can have a housing subsidy by moving into social housing, but it's not the neighborhood that everyone wants because that's not where they grew up or they have their connections. So if people could have portable subsidies and add that to a, a regular rent, they could really open up where they might live in their community. Mm-hmm. Uh, if families with less means could have access to some um, renovation dollars and they could renovate a second apartment into their home, which actually um, contributes to the housing stock in the whole community. So when that family moves on or whatever happens, um, there's a two, per, uh, you know, two dwellings within one house available. 
Um, some of the families are saying, you know, in the fullness of time, I'm going to leave my house to my son. He can move into the main section and he can rent out the other apartment. Um, so there could be a paying tenant, but hopefully a friendly paying tenant, but a paying tenant that might look after um, taxes and other costs. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've just had a, 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 a plethora of um, of creative ideas um, created through this project. Yeah, I love the approach that you've taken really um, embodied that theme of how housing is a community issue yeah. and you haven't just sat in your office and thought about okay what's the best yeah. solution it's yeah. you know let's engage families yeah. and let's get some ideas out yeah. and um, let's all take some ownership in this yeah and I, I think it's really smart to look at it as a like you said a housing issue yeah not you know, a disability well, and, and one of the things that happens is when it's done within MCSS, what they are, they provide services and resources and supports, right? Um, but if they're in charge of housing, they build the residential services, right? And so we need to keep those things separate. A house is, you know, you, it, it might work for a time, but then you can, you sell it and you've got an asset. Whereas in a, in a service, you've got a place in that service and then they might move you to another place where there's a vacancy. It's a whole other ball game. Families only have to think about their own son or daughter and what works best. Right. Right. But we have to make that more affordable. So we held a very, very vibrant housing forum just this week and we had over 70 people come out. Um, oh my goodness, the room was a buzz, but I wanted to end with kind of seven statements that we kind of created um, that would really, really make a difference. And and what I had said is that, you know, um, if families were in charge of housing, things would look different. And these are the seven things that I think that um, I have learned through our project with families that would make a big difference. So I said, if families were in charge of housing, first of all, uh, they would understand that housing, home and support are different things, you know, so that housing is just a structure. You know, and the Ministry of Housing or whoever looks after housing at federal, provincial and municipal levels can help all kinds of people achieve housing. Right. And that the support piece is probably the piece that does belong um, in part with the Ministry of Community and Social Services. But supports are both natural and paid supports and not just paid supports alone. And it's always that combination that will assure that people have a good life. And we've, in fact, come up with ways of planning support. So you start with the ordinary natural supports and then think of the time left. When does paid support need to be in place? And it's really changed our budget. So. So the first thing is that that families would understand that home, housing, and support are three different things and best compl- uh, contemplated and achieved separately. That governments and funders and some of their funds might augment some of these, but they shouldn't control them on behalf of many people. Secondly, that uh, families would understand that most housing challenges for people with disabilities are affordability challenges, not disability challenges. And if people with disabilities were not living mostly in poverty and unable to afford even a basic rent, then their families would not have to juggle creatively to try to figure out their own housing first and then later on for this family member over time. Right. That's the, the affordability challenge. And thirdly, we understand that people with disabilities contribute to their neighborhoods and communities, and people with disabilities are not essentially a burden. 
Um, families understand this hugely. Um, so they're not a burden, but full contributing member of the human family. And it is together that we find the gifts of one another and build rich, uh, diverse, tolerant and resilient community. Uh, we un uh, Families understand that helping families and people with disabilities get good, decent and typical home, housing, and supports doesn't mean taking away their control, authority, and autonomy. It does mean designing financial and direct supports in ways that augment and support natural family assets. And those would be like those portable subsidies I talked about, flexible direct support dollars, but also a little bit of supports for organizations like ours that would support the family um, to take uh, charge, but to give them uh, the feeling they're not doing it alone. Fifthly, we understand that families, that, that providing um, renovation dollars allows families to be creative with their home and space today in ways that will house other citizens in second apartments in the future. Um, home renovations may stabilize the home for the person right away and in future maybe even allow a revenue stream for when their parents aren't there, like I just mentioned. Families understand that governments, funders, and planners need to stop building and funding old-style, high-profile, congregated mega-projects, which are sometimes just for people with disabilities, and sometimes people with disabilities are lumped in with seniors, people with mental health issues, or other homeless people. And we want funders to stop funding those mega-projects now. We think that these confuse new families, tell them that their family members can't take advantage of what is familiar and typical to us all in housing, and it makes them pull away from using their own creativity, assets, opportunities, and connections as the core of home and housing. Right. It takes it right away from them. So we say, you know, you shouldn't be doing this for day supports like day services, and you shouldn't doing these mega-things for recreation and you shouldn't be doing it for respite, and you certainly shouldn't be doing it for housing, right? Mm -hmm. It just confuses the agenda that the, the ministry is trying to set. So we'd like them to commit to only vibrant, diverse, typical housing options um, and, and neighborhoods. And then the last thing we uh, were thinking is that um, there will always be families with a range of interest and ability in imagining better for a good life and community for their family members. And certainly there are some people with no family and no, at all and, and no allied connections. So we understand that for a period of time to come, there may well be a demand for services, for residential services and a, a service model. But where there are keen and hardworking, creative and energetic families who want to be in the driver's seat and who want to build this good life and community with their family members, there ought to be supports and rewards and resources for that. And that's what's not forthcoming. For the cheapest, most effective, most efficient, and most satisfying models, there are the least number of dollars, even if you do it in a ratio. And, and I think that that needs to change. So Janet and her group of families or the group of families uh, in Durham region that are working together have come up with really those seven strong um, statements or calls to action for families, um, organizations, and uh, government, really. So um, I hope that uh, those of you listening take those to heart from, from those experiences that those families are having. I think that also an interesting thing here is just the um, unique power that comes from getting together as families and to discuss 
what potential options are there and to start thinking outside of the box and and to work together um, at a more grassroots level on these solutions. One uh, quote from, from this clip that I think if there's anything that you take away from this podcast episode as uh, a family member um, is really this quote. So this is from Janet. So the change comes when the family realizes that this is their issue to work on. And this goes back to my point earlier of flipping or, or switching out of that victim mentality. And no one likes to be called a victim. And I'm sure uh, you don't like me calling you a victim if you're in this situation. Um, but we all at times in our lives are in that victim state, myself included. So it's really switching out of that victim state of being at the mercy of someone else or being at the mercy of the government and realizing that you have the creative power to make this change for yourself and to take that creator mindset. And I think that's a, a really powerful idea for families to take away. And I think from an organization perspective, it's how do you support families to do this work? From a government perspective, how do you support the families to do this work? And maybe even how do you support the organizations that support families to do this work? And I think a big part of that, like Janet um, expressed, is, is how do you adequately give these families the finances or the tools and resources to create these individualized options that are best for the individual to give them choice and control over their lives. Um, also there from Janet, uh, you hear her talking about keeping services and physical houses, the physical environment, environment separate from, um, from each other. Um, so I think that's a, an important theme that's, that's starting to run through this, this podcast episode. Okay, so up to this point, you've heard from are uh, you've heard clips from uh, guests that have spoken about how really the individualized option for an individual is the best option and will provide them the opportunity to live their best life. Now, the question is, how do you go do that? And what are the things that you need to consider or we need to consider when, when thinking about this, creating this home and all the things incorporated within this home? Next, we're going to hear a clip from my conversation with Marg McLean. And Marg is the executive director of St. Mary's Community Living. And St. Mary's Community Living has really focused for a long time, the last 25, 30 years, on providing people uh, a home of their own or supporting people to obtain uh, a home of their own and to create that. So Mark has a great deal of experience with supporting others, uh, with supporting people with disabilities to create a home of their own. And in this clip, Mark answers the question of how to think about where and how a person wants to live. So here's a clip with Mark. As I understand it, you've been involved with really since the 1980s with helping um, individuals that were coming out of institutions find find homes in the community. So, Mark, would you be able to maybe tell us uh, a little bit about what individuals should be 
thinking about uh, when looking or thinking about um, a home or living independently? Just drawing on some of your experience. Yeah, that's a, a really good question, Eric, because I, I think it's really important for individuals and their families to think of all the things that need to be thought about when, when you're thinking about a home. And that can be everything from, you know, what building I want to live in. Is it an apartment in a complex? And even actually before that, which community do I want to live in? So there are, you know, there are many people who have been raised in the country and they may choose country living. But if they choose country living, then there may be some barriers to that, like transportation. There could be some barriers around having other people close by that can help them if they need some help. There could be uh, barriers around snow removal and the cost of doing that and the cost of living rurally. So, so there's a few things, you know, it could be that the person has grown up uh, in a small community and uh, really wants to stay living in a small community, or or perhaps they're interested in what a larger center might offer them with jobs and employment or trans- accessible and affordable trans- public transportation and other things. So there's a lot of things to consider. And so the beginning is kind of where do you want to live? And then really around uh, where is kind of what is the kind of place that you want to live in? Some people uh, really do well in an apartment building, for example, because they get to see their neighbors as they come in and out. They build relationships that way and and they really like the idea of not having to do, you know, any outdoor maintenance or any of those kind of things. Other people like to have um, a, a home where they've got some grass that they can walk on, where perhaps they could have some, you know, flowers or vegetables to grow, where they might have a backyard that they can sit in and feel comfortable and have the privacy of that. So, you know, everybody um, wants a few different things. And then, of course, along with that is, you know, some people choose to and want to uh, live on their own and um, other people really would like to share home with someone. So there's a lot of questions when it comes to thinking about how I want to live, um, especially when I'm leaving my mom and dad's home, you know. And uh, so a lot of those conversations have to happen over time so that people have an opportunity to really uh, think and, and um, you know, think about all the different issues. Uh, housing is, and where, where and how you want to live is, is probably one of the most fundamental questions that we need to explore and, and create a vision for ourselves. So now Mark has us thinking around, you know, some questions that we should be asking ourselves and asking our loved one. Uh, with a disability about what a home potentially could look like and and where they might want that home to be. And I encourage you to listen to the full podcast with Mark. Uh, it's actually one of the most listened to or downloaded podcasts uh, within the all the podcasts that I've re- recorded so far. And within that uh, podcast episode with Mark, uh, Mark shares uh, the stories of three to four individuals, uh, I can't remember if it's three or four, but uh, she shares some good stories of individuals that have created homes of their own. And there's quite a variety um, of, of different ty- types and, and models of homes um, that Marg shares. So uh, it's a good way to, to get some ideas and to continue um, thinking about what that could look like uh, in your situation. Now, uh, the next clip that I want to share with you is from 
Keenan Weller. And Keenan is the co-leader of an organization in Ottawa called Live Work Play. And in this clip, Keenan shares um, the approach to creating a home that Live Work Play uh, takes. And there's some things within this uh, clip with Keenan that I am uh, going to elaborate on uh, after the clip. I get asked a lot about um, housing, just as a broad, you know, label. Um, People just kind of, you know, what should we do in housing? And I've kind of altered my responses or or conversation a lot over the years and, you know, tend to respond to that by asking a lot of questions because I think it's important that people find their own answer. Uh, There's a lot of risk to all concerned if I just try to provide the answer, Mm -hmm. which is is also disrespectful because I probably, unless I've known the people for a long, long time, that would be different. But Mm -hmm. someone who's just kind of asking me, um, I should not be trying to answer that question based on a little bit of information over the phone. So it's really uh, reflecting back and asking questions. And where I would try to lead people in their inquiries is, well, let's start with uh, where do most citizens tend to live? What type of, uh, you know, living situations are uh, most frequently observed in the community? And then let's, let's start with those and let's just consider what are the barriers uh, to those outcomes and approach it that way. I think it's, um, you know, less productive uh, or certainly shuts down, uh, closes a lot of doors or windows and opportunities if it just starts with kind of what is the systemic, you know, what's the systemic uh, one-size-fits-all perfect housing solution and really saying, you know, well, it's really about your son or daughter. Uh, what are they like? Um, how do they, How much do they value privacy? How much do you even know about that? Have they had many experiences outside of the family home. So, you know, on what basis would we make these sorts of decisions that we're announcing, oh, I think they'd like to have a roommate. Well, how do we know this? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most people don't. Over time, uh, most people do not. Uh, they would value their privacy. Not saying that, you know, a group of people choosing uh, to live together, that it's wrong or that you shouldn't. But it's more about how do we know that that's an informed uh, choice and how we considered you know, what that means in terms of loss of privacy and how we're going to to manage that household. And so really, I, I think to cut to the chase with a lot of people, I would say, well, have you considered an apartment? <laughs> you know, and they're like, an apartment. I'm like, yeah, you know, you move out of your parents' house and you rent an apartment. <laughs> yeah. A normal life journey. And then really, let's just knuckle down. What are the barriers to that? And, you know, a lot of it is safety concerns. And so... You know, if someone was working with us on that process, if they identified with us, you know, this is where we're really confident, this is what Joe wants, and these are the barriers we see, and can you help us work through those? And that is, you know, some really exciting uh, work that we do, and uh, just tackling one by one. Uh, you know, and that's I think that's what we would we would suggest is look at it as a journey, and what are some of the steps along the way, and it's okay to go out a sequence. And also maybe letting go of some things that um, a family may have decided are important. And, you know, as a kind of outside observer and you're, you're thinking, well, is that important? Does someone have to, for example, be able to use a stove? Should we say, you, you know, 
if you can't use a stove, you shouldn't live in your own apartment because they will hear these types of things from time to time. Mm-hmm. Well, once he learns to use a stove, then it's okay. And then I'm saying, well, what if what if it never happens? Uh, what if that's just not um, a good tool for that person for various reasons? Um, does it? You know, are there not people in the world who don't use a stove uh, and yet they don't live in a group home? Oh yeah, I guess there are. I'm like, okay, so <laughs> maybe that's you know maybe that's not the way to go about it. Listing all the things a person can't do as reasons why a certain you know living situation is not possible. So we've had all kinds of interesting things. Um, you know, someone that had a, a challenge with shaving. Uh, we've had appliance troubles. You know, mm-hmm. and we've learned all kinds of interesting thing uh, things about technology and and tools and. Uh, you know, there are dishwashers and microwaves and, you know, uh, there are iPads and technologies with reminders and ways of people getting in touch when there's a problem. And so I think as, as we as an agency have worked on being less obtrusive in people's lives, how can we get ourselves more and more in the background so they can thrive and grow and also not be stigmatized by having us hanging around? Um Kind of the same thing translates for families. So how can we support a person to move forward in their lives? And what are ways that, as a loving family, uh, to really have that be the role? The role is to be a loving family and to be less of, a, you know, kind of an obtrusive uh, monitor and uh, worrier and, and uh, you know, almost like an extension of, of agency of, of uh kind of looking at your own family member as someone that you're working on. And how can we, you know, get out of that role and be more in a traditional role of a, of a loving, caring family member? What I really appreciate um, in this clip with Keenan is how Keenan has shifted to taking a coach approach to really helping to draw out of a, a, an individual uh, and a family what would be best for them. And the one other thing that I, I really appreciate in this clip with Keenan is just using the idea of an apartment as a thought experiment. Even if you've already ruled it out as not the best fit or not the best option uh, for the person with a disability, but just try that and, and start there and, and use it as a thought experiment and say, you know, well, okay, Let's start with an apartment. What does that look like? What would that look like for this individual to live in an apartment? And an apartment is really one of the first uh, homes that many of us have. So it's a great place to start and to think through what could that look like? Again, as Keenan mentioned, what would the possible barriers be? Uh, Where would this individual be successful? Um, What would supports look like? And maybe what's the minimum amount of supports that this individual uh, would need? But just to really use that and, and to think through it and to visualize what that would look like coming to life. And I think that's a great way to, to start to think about uh, creating a home, uh, even if you don't think right now that uh, an apartment is the right first step. So some good thoughts and, and insights from Keenan. And I'd also encourage um, you know people that are supporting others with uh, disabilities to create a home to take that coach approach, to not tell people what's right for them, but to you to, to really be uh, curious and to use uh, inquiry 
uh, asking questions, to help them come to their own conclusions, and to help them break down barriers uh, and really be that coach for them. So our next guest is Jessica Cave, and Jessica is a facilitator that focuses in and around housing for an organization in the Kitchener-Waterloo area called Bridges to Belonging. And Jessica shares some of the insights from her around how a facilitator um, or a coach could possibly help you to to move forward in creating a home. I guess maybe Jessica, what would be helpful, I think, for our listeners is if you could share the approach that you take to helping people with disabilities to think about housing, to find housing, just if you could at a high level share your approach. Yeah, sure. So at Bridges to Belonging is an independent facilitate part of the independent facilitation network. And independent facilitators help to guide process of planning for individuals with a disability through a person-directed approach. So I help families in that sense just in supporting their desire to live on their own and explore moving into a home of their own, finding out what kind of supports they're looking for. Example, uh, the timeline in which they maybe see themselves living in their own place. Um, If they've maybe tested out living on their own, the preferred age or gender of a roommate that they may want to have, what's their budget, um, what supports they might need if they're paid or unpaid supports. So trying to kind of get uh, the bigger picture of what it is that they're looking for and how I can support them through that process. Mm -hmm. So you'll go and meet with a family one-on-one and sit down with them and like start to flush out these things? Exactly. Yeah. And then we'll create a plan together to transition into housing to see what that could look like and and help to reach that goal. Okay. So you said transition into housing. So do you start with something else? Like it's not a one size fits all. So that so an individual may want to transition gradually into a place of their own if they've never lived anywhere on their own before, aside from their parents' home. They may want to test it out first and not just move right in. Uh, so they, the transition may take, you know, a few days, a few weeks, a few months before they're actually living in that, that space on their own. Okay. So Jess, what are the types of ha- uh, homes or different types of options that you would help uh, a person or a family consider? Uh, sure. And I, um, touching on some of the, the different options for people who might be thinking about or looking to live on their own that, you know, um, like renting an apartment or buying a house and maybe renting out some of the units to to other individuals. Um, you could add on to your home like a, as a secondary suite that parents could then when they pass on, that individual could then um, live in that house and rent it out to other to other people, and not have to leave their home. Um, you know, there's lots of ways to think about how we can create living spaces for people that are affordable and and contr- you know contribute to that individual's overall well-being. Now, I wanted to share that clip with you from Jessica just to help 
to give you some perspective on how a facilitator or a coach could potentially help you uh, move forward with creating a home. And she also gives some ideas of the types of homes that she's helping others uh, create in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. Now, the last clip that I want to share with you is from a parent. So uh, her name is Alice Mainland, and she's from Stratford, Ontario. Now, I was introduced to Alice uh, through Marg McLean. And Marg's organization has supported Alice uh, and her family uh, over the years. So the reason that I want to share you share with you this clip with Alice is because Alice exemplifies the mindset of a creator. So this clip isn't necessarily uh, specifically around housing, but it's a good example of how a family can create their solution um, around, and this specifically is around support and creating a support solution. And just being open and knocking down doors and trying to figure out all the possible different combinations of support and not just accepting uh, the default and not waiting for the government to provide her family a solution. So uh, that's why I'm sharing this clip with Alice. And I think it's a good example of creating a solution and taking control and power uh, over your life and the life uh, that you can create uh, for your loved one. So here's the clip with Alice. My husband and I realized that we had a, a, a problem in front of us. That problem is uh, my husband was working part-time so that he could be here when our son left for school at 8.30 and returned home from school at uh, 3.30, which was grand, but all of a sudden that was going to stop and what was going to have to happen. Uh, at that point, my husband and I were considering who was going to have to quit working. Uh, basically, that second income was going to have to stop for our home because there was no other resource short of a couple of hours a day, or, or sorry, a couple of hours, maybe a, a couple of times a week uh, available in terms of a PSW or some type of support. That wasn't going to cut it if we're going to stay in, uh, he was going to stay working. So I started making phone calls, multiple phone calls, uh, to various agencies, and um, uh, I was on the phone with our local member of parliament. I was on the phone with uh, people in the municipality, uh, with uh, our local Larsh Association, and Strafford and St. Mary's Community Living. Uh, I I basically called anyone who had a phone number who I thought might help. And I was so fortunate because there were a couple of individuals who I was able to get a hold of who were willing to sit down uh, collectively. So we were able to pull several agencies together and came up with a strategy. And I was...
to do some additional life skill work. And because of all of those calls, not just for me, but other parents who had the same issue, uh, we were able to accelerate uh, that in Stratford and pick up a portion of that. So basically, it was a patchwork, but it was a patchwork that worked because people wanted to help. They just didn't have all of the answers. So we were so fortunate that we were able to remain a two-income family uh, because we were able to piece this together. However, not a lot of other parents within the community, once their children left the high school environment, um, uh, unfortunately weren't... Um, they didn't know about uh, trying to figure out how they could get their children into foundations or, you know, they just didn't, they don't know what resources are available to them. So um, we were one of uh, a small number that were fortunate enough to be able to uh, uh, have this set up for us during the day. Okay, so we've shared clips from nine different podcasts nine different interviewees and I've tried to splice them together in a way that helps to give you hopefully some new perspectives or maybe even to confirm that for you that you're moving in the right direction when looking to create a home and to create the best life for a person with a disability. So what's next? Now, all of this can seem a little bit daunting and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It is a lot of work. I've gone through this journey with my family and my sister, Sarah. Um, now, as I've mentioned a couple of times uh, previously in previous podcast episodes, but as you think about this for your own family or maybe even as a supporter, how do you support someone going through this journey and to do this type of thinking around what is the best option? What is the best individualized option for this person? Uh, I've created a, uh, a workbook that asks several different questions uh, for you to consider and to practice some inquiry. And I'm have had the first version of this workbook out there for a while. Uh, over 100 people have downloaded it and, and used it, and I hope that's been of value to people. I've done an update to this workbook, and I've included a link to it, uh, so version two of the workbook, which will help you do some of that important thinking around what is the most important things for, for my family member and what are the first steps that, that we can take to move forward um, and, and, and action it. I hope this podcast was, was valuable and it gave you some insights and some perspective on what creating a home looks like for an individual to help them live their best possible life. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, there's now an opportunity for you to subscribe to the podcast, to contribute towards creating incredible, ordinary lives for people with developmental disabilities. And 80% of any subscription uh, revenues will go towards directly towards community grassroots uh, initiatives to create incredible, ordinary lives. Uh, and the other 20% will 
be put towards any uh, or put towards the maintenance, hosting, and content creation um, costs uh, that go towards this. And hopefully, there will be enough left over to keep me well caffeinated and <laughs> moving forward with creating more content uh, for you that I hope you find valuable. So head over to empoweringability.org uh, if you would like to subscribe and contribute. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, if you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit, please share it with them. Uh, be a part of the change to think differently about disability. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability build a full and meaningful life.